We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. All right, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Fellowship Bible Church tonight. Uh, Excuse me. As something of a postscript to what I said this morning, I asked the question at the end of the message, rhetorical question with an answer, what uh, can you do about this matter of, uh, as we talked about this morning, uh, capital punishment? And uh, the main application that I brought was, you can believe rightly about it. Believe rightly about it, even if you feel that you can't do anything. But there is something else that you can do. Actually, a couple of other things. First of all, you can advocate for what Uh, God has told us is the true and best and right way for our society uh, to be, and that is in personal conversations and any kind of uh, platform that you have. And the second way that you can uh, do something about it is to use the vote in our representative republic to select candidates that will do the right thing. One of our brothers this morning asked if he could make an announcement, and I said yes, and then I promptly forgot to uh, call on him to do that. (laughs) My fault. But uh, what he wanted to tell us was that we need to get out and vote uh, for the in the upcoming election, and whether that's uh, absentee for you or uh, in person or however you have chosen to do that, must, must, must participate in a way that shows that your belief is right, that your belief is lined up with Scripture, because uh, voting and believing in, uh, in God are not two separable things. The, your beliefs affect how you vote. And, uh, you know, please do not try to convince me that you can separate those two things and say, well, my beliefs are one thing, but you know, my political party is another, my vote is another. They have to be connected. Otherwise, you know, we're just talking, blah, 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 religion over here, and then we do our own thing, our other thing over here. They have to be connected. So uh, get out and uh, do what you can to influence the society. That's your role as a good citizen, as a Christian good citizen. And uh, I commend that to you. One way that you can be informed, we have uh, nonpartisan voter guides in the back, uh, that just a half sheet of paper that gives you some information. You all are well apprised of these matters. As I look around, I know that most everybody's uh, in the know on the news, but uh, you've got that. Uh, I've been sent a lot of information this year on uh, Proposal 3, and um, Although churches are supposed to be forbidden from uh, any kind of campaign or political activity, uh, it has been made clear that we have broad latitude when it comes to issue advocacy. And we do advocate for the lives of the unborn. And uh, the other proposals, you know, we don't have, uh, I'm not as familiar with them. Um, 
one and two. I, I don't know exactly, but I encourage you, you must read them. You must read the language uh, in them. Don't just take everything you've heard from either side and all that. Read the actual language and ask yourself, do I want this, uh, the law of the land, or this to be in the Constitution or whatever? And, and if you don't, then vote accordingly. Thank God that we can do that, and uh, we're not just you know hauled off out of the uh, party meeting like uh, recently happened in China, and uh, goodbye, we don't like you anymore, and uh, no respect for elders, no, no respect for the wisdom of gray hair and uh, that sort of thing. Um, so that was kind of the, uh, the announcement that our, our one brother wanted to make this morning, and I, I uh, apologize for not getting him the opportunity to do that. But hopefully that will uh, just remind us we've got to do our part. If Christians don't do our part, then uh, we uh, you know, probably shouldn't complain. <laughs> we shouldn't complain anyway, right? Do all things without grumbling and disputing or complaining. Yes. Did you have something? Yeah, I didn't find that to be the case, Becky. I saw what, what somebody sent me was another version of that, and it was very short. It was about a half a page or so. No, that was, that was, the, that was shorter yet, what was on the ballot. Oh, we'll have to look into that. Yeah. Well, anyway, the killing of babies is morally wrong. However you write it in flowery language, however short, however long, it doesn't matter. So we're just going to um, leave it at that for now and encourage you to do what you can uh, to uh, support that which is righteous and good uh, before God. Let's turn our Bibles then as we uh, focus again there to Second uh, Chronicles in Second Chronicles in chapter 30, uh, is it 31? Yes, 31 already. Second Chronicles 31. We're still in the reign of Hezekiah. Hezekiah actually gets a lot of uh, airtime, shall we say, here, which is good because uh, he was a, a much better king than some of the others. And uh, it talks about in chapter 30, recall, we went through the whole thing about them celebrating the Passover. They couldn't quite do it at the right time, but they got that straightened out and they were they extended the celebration for quite some time and it just was a great time of, of reform and uh, improvement in the land spiritually. But now further, the text tells us, now when all this was finished, chapter 31, all Israel who were present went out to the cities of Judah and broke the sacred pillars into pieces, cut down the wooden images and threw down the high places and the altars from all Judah, Benjamin, Ephraim, and Manasseh until they had utterly destroyed them all. Then all the children of Israel returned to their own cities, every man to his possession. Now somebody's going to say, wow, that's pretty radical. They did all that. You know what? Obedience to God when it comes to idolatry has to be radical. Has to be radical. You know, like the Lord taught us, if your, sin, if your hand causes you to sin, what? Obviously, metaphorically speaking, you've got to deal radically with sin. If your eye causes you to stumble, cut it out. Uh, I like that phrase, cut it out, because it reminds us to mortify sin. You know, if you're doing something wrong, what does your mom or dad say to you? Cut it out. What they mean is quit. Behave yourself, okay? That's, that's the issue. 
So they dealt with that pretty radically. Verse 2, Hezekiah appointed the divisions of priests and the Levites according to their divisions, each man according to his service, the priests and Levites for burnt offerings and peace offerings to serve, to give thanks and to praise in the gates of the camp of the Lord. The king also appointed a portion of his possessions for the burnt offerings, for the morning and evening burnt offerings, the burnt offerings for the Sabbaths and the new moons and the set feasts as it is written in the law of the Lord. Moreover, he commanded the people who dwelt in Jerusalem to contribute support for the priests and the Levites that they might devote themselves to the law of the Lord. How do you suppose they supported themselves before this? Well, they were supposed to be supported by the gifts of God's people, but maybe they had to do some moonlighting, you know, some second job, some second shift work or something to try to support themselves, more farming or something. As soon as the commandment was circulated, the children of Israel brought in abundance the first fruits of grain and wine, oil and honey, and of all the produce of the field, and they brought in abundantly the tithe of everything. And the children of Israel and Judah, who dwelt in the cities of Judah, brought the tithe of oxen and sheep, also the tithe of holy things, which were consecrated to the Lord their God, they laid in heaps. In the third month, they began laying them in heaps, and they finished in the seventh month. And when Hezekiah and the leaders came and saw the heaps, they blessed the Lord and his people Israel. Then Hezekiah questioned the priests and the Levites concerning the heaps. And Azariah, the chief priest from the house of Zadok, answered him and said, Since the people began to bring the offerings into the house of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and have plenty left. For the Lord has blessed his people, and what is left is this great abundance. Now Hezekiah commanded them to prepare rooms in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them. Then they faithfully brought in the offerings, the tithes, and the dedicated things. Conaniah the Levite had charge of them, and Shimei, his brother, was next. Okay, now hold on to your, your seats here because we have some difficult names. Jehiel, Azaziah, Nahath, Asahel, Jeremoth, Jazabad, Eliel, Ismachiah, Mahath, and Benaiah were overseers under the hand of Conaniah and Shimei, his brother, at the commandment of Hezekiah the king and Azariah the ruler of the house of God. Cori, the son of Imna the Levite, the keeper of the east gate, was over the free will offerings to God to distribute the offerings of the Lord and the most holy things. And under him were Eden, Miniamin, Jeshua, Shemaiah, Amariah, and Shechaniah, his faithful assistants in the cities of the priests to distribute allotments to their brethren by divisions to the great as well as the small. Besides those males from three years old and up who were written in the genealogy, they distributed to everyone who entered the house of the Lord his daily portion for the work of his service by his division. And to the priests who were written in the genealogy according to their father's house and to the Levites from 20 years old and up according to their work by their divisions. And to all who were written in the genealogy, their little ones and their wives, their sons and daughters, the whole company of them, For in their faithfulness they sanctified themselves in holiness. Also for the sons of Aaron, the priests, who were in the fields of the common lands of their cities, in every single city, there were men who were designated by name to distribute portions to all the males among the priests and to all who were listed by genealogies among the Levites. Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. And in every work that he began in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandment to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. 
so he prospered. So he prospered. Very interesting, isn't it? May you do everything you do with all of your heart to the Lord. And uh, besides being good and, and honoring to the Lord, it's going to help you to enjoy what you're doing if you do it with all of your heart instead of just kind of half-heartedly going about life doing things. You know, do it with, with the might that God has given you to use for that. So we'll leave you with that thought, chapter 31, Second Chronicles. And I guess the young people have already made their quick escape. So we'll go right into our sermon for tonight. It's in Matthew chapter 26 and some related passages. If you'd turn there to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, we didn't quite finish the material from the, the, what I called the last Passover uh, last time. So I want to just take you through that a little bit this evening, and then we'll see if we get any farther into the, uh, into the chapter. But um, so from the last notes that were available on the, uh, on the website, and they still are, Matthew 26, 17 to 25, I title it the last Passover. Uh, that is probably not a common phrase or term or title for this passage because, you know, you think, well, the Passover is still going on. But this is really a, a demarcation point in the ending of God's desire for the people of Israel and for the Gentiles to think about celebrating the Passover in the sense of, um, you know, just with the bare remembrance of, of the exodus from Egypt. Yes, the people are still going to do that, and that's fine to celebrate that. But to do so without recognizing a greater deliverance from sin is, uh, is a shortcoming, is a truncation of the, uh, the meaning of it. Who could not but see or who could avoid to see the um, the, the change that the Lord has happened here. I guess a common phrase these days: you you can't unsee it. You know, you can't un you can't unremember what the Lord has ta- taught us here in the passage on the Passover. So, um, <clears throat> we uh, we looked at the preparations for the Passover, and we looked at Exodus chapter twelve in particular, and we had to stop once we did see that the, the Lord talked about how uh, it was his time. The, the Son of Man goes just as it is written uh, of him, um, and it was the time for him to uh, go ahead and do that. It says that in, uh, let's see, um, verse 18, the teacher says, my time is at hand. And we contrasted that with all of the portions of Scripture that say that his time was not yet. Remember that? His time was not yet. My time is not yet. They, they sought to lay hands on him, but his, it wasn't his hour yet, so he escaped from them or kind of disappeared out of their grasp. But now the time was. And so we come to verse number 20 with this in mind, and it says, When evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. They had prepared the table. They had prepared the meal. Uh, everything was ready. They had roasted the lamb, all of that, and uh, they were now celebrating the Passover meal together. Now, verse 21, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. And each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? 
He answered and said, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, who was betraying him, answered and said, Rabbi, is it I? He said to him, You have said it. You have said it. As I said uh, to one brother maybe last week, uh, this isn't my favorite portion of Scripture to preach because of the sadness of it. And I'm really talking about the whole Passion you know, week, especially the Thursday, if you take a Thursday uh, evening for the meal, Friday crucifixion, Saturday, of course, the glorious uh, resurrection on Sunday of uh, that first day of the week was wonderful. But uh, this is all very you know, kind of a downer in a sense, although I know we're supposed to look at it and say, wow, you know, this is great. He suffered for us and he died in our place. Yeah, well, but he suffered and he died. And that's, you know, hurts, hurts the heart a little bit, doesn't it? Um, so the focus of these verses at this point in verses 20 to 25 is not on the Passover meal per se, but on the story of Judas's betrayal. And you just have to think, how can a man be with Jesus, this wonderful Jesus, this perfect man, and hate his guts and want to kill him, want to betray him? How is it? What is it in human nature that makes somebody so perverse, that makes them so angry, that makes them so uh, backwards, that makes them so morally immoral, that, that, that... that kind of like blanks out their conscience and turns them into a cold-blooded killer uh, in, in this case, or, you know, in lesser cases, just that somebody that just turns away from God and says, forget all that. What is it in the human heart? Well, we know it's depravity. It's the sin nature that does that deception, that deceiving and that desire and, and all of that. But here he was. The Lord made the announcement, one of you will betray me. Now, to say this was a shocker is the least that you could say. Judas was very clandestine about what he was doing. You know, that's the thing. People who sin often know that they're doing wrong, and they, they show that by doing their sin clandestinely. They don't, he didn't want Jesus or the other disciples to find out. Don't want my mom and dad to find out. Uh, you know, I'm going to hide it. Uh, I don't want the church people to know that that's going on in my life or whatever, so I'm not going to... That's how sin flourishes. You know what sin is like? Um, it's, like a, it's like a fungus. You know, if, if the sun is shining on an area of ground, are you going to see any you know, mushrooms there? If the sun is bright there, no, it's not. But if you go into a shady spot or kind of on the, you know, on the north side of a tree or whatever, you know, and you find the, the shade and the, the darker spots, you're going to find uh, the fungus growing. And sin likes to grow in the darkness, doesn't it? To hide, to not say anything to anybody, to, uh, to not ask for prayer, certainly, to not admit you're struggling or whatever. Um, he did this clandestinely. Well, they began, the disciples to be very, began to be very sad and sorrowful, and it was a very depressing situation. This was very, uh, very unfortunate because, 
let me liken it to this. Um, you know, somebody, uh, you, you have people over for Christmas morning to exchange gifts, and at that festive occasion, one of the family members stands up to make a terrible announcement. You know, I have cancer or something like that. I mean, it just kills the whole, you know, mood, if you will. It kills the whole atmosphere. And it's just, this is kind of how, how like, different, you know, celebrating the Passover, remembering that, but then, oh, somebody's going to betray. What a gut punch that seems like. They knew the Lord was not bluffing or lying. This prediction would certainly come to pass, and somebody was going to betray the Lord. Now, of course, you know, later on we'll come to it, but <clears throat> Jesus makes another prediction about Peter. And Peter's not, of course, this one, but he's going to uh, deny the Lord. And, uh, but he, he at least emphasizes, look, I'm not going to do that. I mean, you give credit to Peter because, how, how do you say, give him, give him credit for trying anyway? <laughs> uh, he didn't get an A on that homework assignment, but he got some... He gets some credit for at least um, being bold and uh, that way at the beginning of the whole thing, but he found out in his own strength he couldn't do it. Each person at the table, of course, except Judas and Jesus, each one was worried about himself that he might be the one to do the betrayal. So they asked the Lord each in turn, and uh, they, uh, you know, were, Lord, is it I? You know, is it me? Am I the one? He answered by identifying the person very generically. It says, he, in verse 23, He who dipped his hand with me in the dish will betray me. So uh, he says simply, somebody sharing meals with me is going to be one who is my betrayer. The Lord used a passage in the Psalms. And if you want to turn there, it might be helpful for you just to lay your eyes on this. In Psalm 41.9, it tells us this. This is a a part of lamentation. Verse 41.7, All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Verse 9, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. That's a metaphorical phrase, lift up the heel, to to stomp somebody into the ground, to uh, just destroy them, crush them. The person who ate at his table did that, you know, Criminal behavior of a a person against a random victim is bad enough, but when it's a family member or close to a family member, doesn't it make the betrayal so much worse? You know, somebody that he supported, somebody that he, uh, you know, trained, gave to, gave himself to, ate with, trusted. In this case, Judas trusted him with the money, He was the treasurer. He couldn't even be trusted with that. So the Lord, steeped in the knowledge of the Hebrew Bible, used Psalm 41.9 to express this terrible situation when his friend turned and betrayed him. 
So the Lord says two things going on here in this. Um, Verse 24, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. So first, the Son of Man was going as written. The divine plan had to be implemented. The Messiah had to suffer and die according to passages in the Hebrew Scriptures. What passages were those that the Lord may have been thinking about when he said, the Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. It had to be written in the Bible. It had to be written in the Hebrew Scriptures. What kind of passages might we be talking about here? Well, I think you probably would think right away of Isaiah 53. And uh, I'll just remind you of a few verses of that where it talks about this one growing up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of a dry ground, no form nor comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. And then as as it is written, I'm thinking, he's thinking, look, he has borne our griefs, he's carried our sorrows, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. Every one has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin, the transgression of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and judgment. Who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. By the way, this demands that the he, the servant here, has to be separate from the people of Israel. Israel is not the servant here. This one... The Messiah was stricken for the sins of that people. So anybody who tries to to kind of unwind this interpretation that this is a messianic prophecy is doing the text a great disservice. Just look at the text. Uh, God has made him to be a sacrifice for sins. He made his soul an offering for sin. And then, of course, we see the glorious... Uh, triumph after that in the last part of Isaiah 53. But you also have passages like Psalm 16. You will not leave my soul in Sheol nor suffer your Holy One to see corruption. So something has to happen for the soul of the Lord to be uh, there in in a Sheol situation. Uh, We have also in Zechariah, Chapter 9 and verse number 9, the Son of Man goes as it is written. And this one's a little different. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So just as it is written, that had to happen as well. And then uh, in Zechariah, since I was there, I found Zechariah 12.10. And it says there, I will pour on the house of David and on its inhabitants, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication. 
They will look on me whom they pierced. Sounds like Isaiah 53, doesn't it? Uh, Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn, firstborn son who was killed. Um, Genesis 3.15, you remember that passage, don't you? That uh, the serpent would bruise the heel of the, the seed of the woman, but the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. And then perhaps one of the most um, direct statements, I'd, I'd, I didn't really ever forget about this, but I kind of forgot about it for a while, and I just realized, boy, when the Lord says he's going just as it is written, and remember we looked at the prophecy in Daniel 9 some years ago and saw the timing of that prophecy, uh, and when it was given, when, the, when the, the time clock started on these 77s, 70 weeks of years, and then in verse 26, it has these, you know, it has nine, uh, sorry, it has seven uh, weeks and then 62 weeks and then the last one. And it says, after the 62 weeks, verse 26, Messiah shall be cut off. Messiah shall be cut off. How much more could you ask for? If somebody asked, does the Old Testament predict that the Messiah will be killed? Yes. Your answer, Daniel 9, 26. After the 62 sevens, the 62 week of sevens of seven years, it says, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. An allusion to the fact that he was not killed for his sin. He was killed for the sins of others. So the Son of Man is going just exactly as it is written of him. So it has to happen. But here's the conundrum. Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Woe to him. So first of all, the Lord is going to go and accomplish what was written. It was necessary. Once God wrote it, it was necessary to be fulfilled. But then the person guilty of the Lord's murder is going to suffer judgment. The judgment, the Lord says in verse 24, is so bad that he says this, it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. That's a counterfactual statement. If he had not been born, well, he was born. This seems to be the case in a kind of generic way for everyone who rejects Christ. Better for them personally if they had not existed in a way, but they do exist, don't they? And they did exist for those that have lived before us, and God decided that for his own good reasons they would exist, not just for themselves personally, but for the benefit of others or of God or some combination of their, of those things. But nevertheless, they earn for themselves a place of retribution for rejecting God. Okay, so it's sort of generically true in a way, but certainly especially true. And as we alluded to, you know, some time ago, there is some idea of levels of punishment. Um, you know, if the works that had been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented a long time ago. But as it is, your judgment is going to be worse. Um, the Lord said in a couple of different places. So there is an idea of worse or less or more judgment. 
and uh, we'll let the Lord sort all of that out. That's his business, not ours. But Judas then takes a turn at asking the question, is it I? He knows very well, and so this is a disingenuous question. Why would he ask that? Just so he could kind of hide still, fit underneath the, uh, you know, in the group, look like everybody else. And the Lord's answer is not as direct as you might like it, but it's this. You have said it. You have said it. So it's, it's not a direct answer to the inquiry, but enough to get the point across. The other Gospels bring in more detail. Mark 14 says it's one of the twelve. We know that from here. It's, you know, one of you will betray me. Uh, verse, or secondly, it says in Luke 22, the hand of the betrayer is with me on the table. And then in John 13, you remember that portion where Peter a kind of motioned to young John the apostle and said, hey, you know, find out who it is. And somehow they figured that out and, and Jesus indicated to John that it was Judas. And then apparently John passed that information on, you know, like, him. I, I don't know exactly how it worked, but they got the point. Uh, John did, and Peter did, and then all the disciples, obviously, Matthew, and so on, eventually. That, you know, that's how it, how it came down. Each and every one of us who are believers in Christ should ask ourselves, am I the one? Not in the same exact sense as, as Judas was doing here, but if we're truly believers, we're not going to be people who deny Christ or, or uh, betray him is what I mean to say. But would we be the one to sin against the Lord or to deny him? And I would venture to say that if you're not concerned about yourself that you could fall into sin, then you need to retool your mindset. You know, if you're of the mindset like, you know, I could never, I could never fail the Lord. About by t the end of tomorrow, you will, if not the end of today, even though there's only five hours left, okay? That attitude is not a good attitude. You want to have that mindset. The disciples, you know, the other 11 didn't and weren't about to betray the Lord, but they're like, boy, if the Lord said some of us, somebody's going to betray us, that somebody's going to, I don't really want it to be me. Lord, is it me? Like, I don't know what you would do if you found out it was me ahead of time. Well, what you would do is you would ask the Lord, change, change something. So it's not me. <laughs> I don't want it to be me. I don't want to fail you. I don't want to fall into sin. I want to live for you. I want to have victory over sin. So be sure to have a little bit of that mindset. Is it I? You know, could I do that? Yes, in, in us, we have a tendency or seed of sin. Even after being saved, that seed can grow into a very bad fruiting tree. We need God's help to stay on the straight and narrow path and not to veer off temporarily into bad neighborhoods. Stay on the road, my friends. Don't go off into, you know, the bad subdivisions, the bad parts of town metaphorically speaking, in your life, in your mind, stay with the Lord. And, and remember, it could be you that sins that way, you know, that way that you read about in the news or that way that 
you know, some Christian person or pastor or missionary has failed, you could fail. God, is it I? Don't let it be I. Please help me. And then finally, I would just add, as far as this section is concerned, Jesus went through all of this for his creation and for you. Isn't that something? For you. Well, in the next section, the Lord does what I call create, creating the Lord's table. And this is a marvelous uh, segment of Scripture. I'm not going to be able to give all of it here, but I'll just read it, make maybe a couple of comments. The Lord created His table. The Lord created the remembrance service. And it says in verse 26... You know, and still now, hanging over their heads, this business about somebody betraying, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins, but I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. I would almost wish for more explanation in these verses and less on the Judas thing. But, you know, there's a lot of verses given over to that betrayal and the preparation for the Passover. Very simple uh, narrative here. The Lord takes the bread and the cup, parts of the Passover Seder, re-signifies them. And I'm not going to, like I say, be able to get into all of this. There's a ton of stuff in here. Um, But let me just mention a couple things. One is, and look at verse 27. It says, Then he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. Um, What does your translation say? Does it say uh, drink all of it or something like that? Drink from it, all of you. Sometimes you hear, what's that? Yeah, just what I'm saying. Sometimes you hear people, and I think maybe one of the translations, maybe it's the King James, has this notion in it that, um, maybe it's from 1 Corinthians, that uh, you're to drink all of it. The all it gets kind of moved so that it refers to all of, the, all of the wine, like drink it all down. But what the text is telling us is Jesus is saying to the disciples, all of you disciples drink some of the wine, not you disciples drink all of the wine down to the last drop. Whether they did it to the last drop or not is not really relevant. Uh, maybe you know they did by the time all 12, or probably there were some others at the table as well and some of the you know, uh, other you know people, maybe a few or somebody else attending or helping or whatever. But in any case, um, you know, they, that wasn't the point, to drink all of it. The point was that all of them were to participate in it. And then one other one that I uh, highlight that I came out with, and then I'll let you go, um, is in, um, it's actually not in this portion. It's in Luke 
And I want to read it because it's, it happened right here, just that Matthew didn't record it for us. In Luke twenty-two nineteen, it says, And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then the Apostle Paul does the same, says the same thing about a remembrance in 1 Corinthians 11, both with the cup and the bread. So the debate rages on as to the significance of the Lord's table or Eucharist service. What is it all about? And you know, some try to say there's a, an operative grace there and the Lord is spiritually present in the elements, or He's actually present, or there's transubstantiation and all these things. And I just was hit when I studied this, like, why don't we just let the text tell us what it means? This is a remembrance of the Lord. He tells us, do this, what? Yes, do the, what is the doing? It's the eating and the drinking. And when you're doing that, you're doing it in remembrance as a memorial to the Lord. That's it. It's not magical things going on. There's not, you know, um, another dose of salvation coming to you to kind of keep you, you know, dosed up for the week or something like that. That's not it at all. He says it. Do this in remembrance of me. And so if we just let the text say what the text says and and have the sway over us that it should have, then we would say, well, that's easy. I don't have to fuss about that. I just do what it says. I remember the Lord when I eat and when I drink. So we'll go over that more in the next times that we have together, but I'm going to let you go, like I said. Um, I'm going to give you a little uh, early out here because this morning I kept you late, so I'm making up for it, okay? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you for the time that we've been able to share in the Word in uh, Matthew's Gospel. And although some of it is uh, somewhat depressing to remember uh, what happened in the betrayal of the Lord, those were the human means that you used to accomplish your purpose that Jesus would go just as it was written. And we might wish in some way that it didn't have to be so terrible and unjustly done, but uh, there doesn't seem in our view, that there could have been any other way. And besides that, we know that what you accomplished in the atoning work of Christ was so tremendous that we just have to thank you for it. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to live worthy of that calling that you've called us with. In Christ's name, amen.